You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are a few highlights from this week's program. We've known for centuries, since the beginning of time, how sound, you know, impacts a person's emotional well-being, for instance. You know, you think of like Gregorian chants and churches and uh, Tibetan monks chanting and uh, Native American drumming, for instance. These are, these are traditions that have been around for centuries. Thankfully, I've learned a lot about the brain science of the brain. The tumor was located in the left frontal lobe, which is where you get your executive functioning, your ability to plan, your ability to organize. Your right frontal lobe is where you get your creativity, and so I still have that. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 303, Musical Healing, airing for the first time on Sunday, July 9th, 2017. Music is part of our celebrations and our inspiration. It can serve as a means of commonality between humans. It can also heal. Today we speak with Pamela Floria, a psychotherapist who integrates sound into the modality she offers her clients in order to help them break cycles of physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering. We also have a conversation with Maine singer-songwriter Dan Connor, who has returned to his music as a way of returning to health after having surgery for a brain tumor in 2012. Thank you for joining us. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormaine.com. My next guest is Pamela Floria, who has been in the nursing profession for more than 40 years and has a private practice in Freeport. Over the past two decades, she has worked as an intuitive energy psychotherapist, integrating sound and color healing with traditional talk therapy. Thanks for coming in today. Oh, thanks for having me, Lisa. I'm very interested in what you do because um, there are a lot of people out there who are trying to make changes in their lives, which is not easy, and you're giving them a new way to do that, I think. That's pretty accurate, yes. Um, my practice sort of integrates um, the principles of energy medicine, so working with the human energy field, working with the meridians, the chakras, person's auric field, um, to work at balancing and creating harmony in the physical body, as well as employing, you know, traditional therapeutic interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy, for instance. So a session kind of combines uh, both. So it's very holistic. And you came at this after having been in a pretty straightforward nursing um, field for probably uh, at least half the time you've been in nursing. Yes, exactly. I um, have been in, you know, various clinical settings, hospital settings, and but I, I've always 
Um, even though I've worked like, you know, out of nursing school, I worked um, neonatal intensive care, for instance. And very aware, even early on in my nursing profession, that I always had an interest in the alternative, always interested in what other things we were doing. For instance, you know, in neonatal intensive care, it was being aware of how the premature babies in the isolates needed to be held. They needed to be touched and aware that we would um, pipe in music into the isolettes and the incubators, which, you know, made them calm down and affected their growth rates, you know. And so even though I was in very traditional settings, um, you know, working in um, the operating room, you know, allowing people to have headphones and, you know, be able to listen to music would have an overall impact on the recovery time, you know, for instance. So very aware throughout the 40 years, but then in the last 20 years um, is when I really kind of came into my groove and I would say found my passion um, being able to really integrate sound healing into, you know, a private practice, Um, because I had gone back at that point, being able to be out on my own and independent, you know, from working in institutions. So I started incorporating sound healing, um, for one, which um, is a really fascinating discipline to... um, incorporate with traditional therapy um it it um it's amazing to see the progress and see people move through difficult um transitions in their life more smoothly with introducing sound for instance if i was going to come see you for sound healing therapy what what types of things might i be interested in dealing with well I'll use the example of um, somebody who might be dealing with um, anxiety um, or, or who has a trauma history, for instance, and has some PTSD or chronic anxiety. Um, my goal would be, you know, first of all, using some cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, stress reduction kind of techniques to get them comfortable in their body and feeling, you know, um, teaching them ways to sort of elicit a relaxation response in the body, like Herbert Benson's work with his cardiac patients. This is just basic as being able to provide an antidote for the, the fight or flight response. So a lot of people who experience trauma, for instance, are not comfortable in their bodies at all. Um, so there will be part, uh, you know, talking through that sort of thing, giving them, um, guided visualization um, exercises to do at home. But um, then they would get on the table and I might use tuning forks on the meridians, for instance. Um, I might use my hoop drum to really ground them and center them in their body. Um, I um, have crystal singing bowls. I have different instruments of sound. uh, And it's all about... um, working with the energy and, you know, being able to balance and shift and, you know, it provides um, 
a tonic to the nervous system. And not only that, um, there's a whole branch of medicine now called psychoacoustic. And although that term may be new for some people to hear, um, we've known for centuries since the beginning of time how sound um, you know, impacts a person's emotional well-being, for instance. You know, you think of like Gregorian chants and churches and uh, Tibetan monks chanting and uh, Native American drumming, for instance. These are, these are traditions that have been around for centuries. But now in more modern medicine, what we're doing is um, through the use of imaging, imaging, you know, PET scans and EEGs, um, you know, we're noticing how it impacts the, the brain waves and, and how it impacts a person's neurochemistry. So it actually um, has an impact on producing more serotonin, which, you know, of course, is the neurochemical that influences mood and, um, and sleep and, you know, uh, managing pain. And so there's actually changes going on you know, on a cellular level. So um, it's a combination of various modalities that I would use. So you're doing things that kind of go across the spectrum, everything from cognitive behavioral, which is more of a right. standard psychotherapeutic practice, um, to things that have been going on for a long time, centuries, but just right. haven't necessarily been incorporated previously into right. um, the type of practice that we've been offering patients. Mm -hmm. So why sound? There are so, you know, we have various senses, and some people are really a lot more impacted by something visual. I know that we've talked to people who do light training, for example, mm -hmm. but for you, sound was important. Why, why is that? It's basic, you know, to, we know that, you know, um, I'm thinking of, um, you know, you could be in your car and listen to, you know, a song on the radio and it just can completely make you smile and relax and, you know, just shift your mood from this, you know, difficult day at work. It's accessible to everyone on every level, even if it's just, you know, listening to, like I say, a song on the radio. Um, you don't have to go to a sound healer to uh, feel impacted. So it's, it's. Um, I think it's just because it's so profound. And I, I know of so many integrative doctors that you know, like the late Mitch Gaynor. I mean, he, uh, with his oncology patients in particular. So, um, I'm, I'm just fascinated by that and also color, the, the frequency of color and how, how color influences our mood too. Um, so um, I've personally experienced the healing benefits of sound um, and because I, you know, um, was personally impacted by that, I, you know, I think that makes it, you know, I'm more passionate about it. I guess that would help answer the question. So was there a turning point where you were, I, I don't know, where you were lying on a table yourself and somebody was doing something with sound and, and you felt just so profoundly moved that this you realized this is something that you needed to learn more about? Well, I did. I, did, um, I grew up in a big um, Catholic 
alcoholic family. So there was, um, I experienced a lot of chaos, a lot of dysfunction, a lot of um, trauma, I guess you would say, as a kid. So um, I was very open to being able to, um, and, and how that you know, created stress in my own body and, and, you know, in my, as I was approaching adulthood and just wanting to um, deal with some of that. And so I kind of experimented around with different modalities. And um, I went over and did some training in France, um, learning how to use tuning forks on the meridians. And they had these huge instruments of sound um, that you would sit in and the, the sound would just reverberate through your whole entire being. And I just, I felt uh, tremendous purging from that experience. So I guess that's what would come to mind is that I, I um, you know, I just felt I, you know, had cleared out a lot of emotional baggage and, um, and really was able to shift you know, some perspective, perspectives and understanding about, um, you know, moving through things and how I could help other people um, be able to, to shift and move forward and, you know, instill hope and, um, you know, that you can kind of overcome anything, really. Well, it's interesting as you're talking about the chaos of a large family, because I as you know, I'm the oldest of 10 children, so, and my family was as functional as a 10-child <laughs> family can be, I think. It wasn't, we didn't have some of the bigger issues that other families struggle with, but it was chaotic. I mean, there definitely was a lot going on, and for myself in my own life, I actually have I've found myself gravitating towards silence, probably as a result of early on being kind yeah. of impacted by <laughs> all of the stuff, none of which was really bad. It was just very normal. But, but I think there is something really formative about being in a household that has a certain level of whatever noise same. there is. Yeah, same. Totally relate to that experience. You know, I'm particularly um, interested in, like back in the mid-90s, uh, the CDC had done um, a ACE study, they called it, and it's um, with Kaiser Permanent, and it's it was a study... Um, done with like, I don't know, 15 to 20,000 people. And it was measuring, looking at adverse childhood experiences and seeing the correlation between adult illness. So those early experiences and what they call um, adverse childhood experience doesn't have to be like the you know, acute uh, trauma that were, that were, it, could, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, like abuse of some kind. It can be the chaos you're describing growing up in a, you know, just a huge family where there's only so much time the parents have to devote to kids. It can be a depressed parent. It can be, um, you know, financial strain, um, of course, loss of, you know, um, death or illness, a parent that's chronically ill. Um, but the interesting thing is that I'm, I'm really interested in making this connection, and this is where I feel like I can be a bridge, is the early experiences um, in childhood like that, where there's kind of a chronic, um, un, you know, like relentless sort of um, stress. Um, it sets the nervous system in, in a, a way that's like fight or flight, you know, chronically. 
And what we're seeing in adults is a lot of inflammatory kind of chronic illness because of the surge in cortisol levels. They are more prone to autoimmunity, uh, cancer, heart disease, you know, all the major um, obesity, you know, um, and then, you know, of course, diabetes and um, even looking at addiction, you know, uh, ways that um, adults cope. And so I think there's a huge opportunity or an educational piece as part of prevent, you know, preventive medicine, because we're not hearing about this, you know, in med students are not learning about uh, being able to make that connection and be able to ask the right questions. Because, you know, quite often, um, especially in the you know, primary care setting right now, the way managed care is set up and the, you know, these limited uh, visits, uh, people aren't sharing these things with their physician and they're, they're just dealing with, you know, what they, um, nobody's making the connection or asking questions about what your childhood was like. You know, it's just, just sort of not time for that, but there certainly needs to be more education or even have it be part of the intake or the questionnaires, you know, the, for your annual exam. Um, I think that that's a huge um, gap that I think we need to we need to look at because it's um, you know since that study was done in the mid '90s, there have been you know thousands more that are supporting this evidence and you know these people are still being followed from that original study and um, oftentimes it doesn't even have to be a big um, you know just just for somebody to make that connection for your physician to make that connection and to maybe recommend that you go see someone to talk about it or to have somebody you know who may be working energetically with them is oftentimes a relief and it may be the first time in their life that they've ever shared, um, you know, their experience or thought that it might even be relevant, you know. So I think we, um, you know, it's just an educational opportunity, I think. Do you think that the reason that we don't always think to ask about people's childhood experiences is because we're not really sure how we could possibly impact them? Well, again, I think that, um, and you could speak to this too. I mean, and when you went through your training, you know, it's it's an area of discomfort because if somebody opens up and shares, you know, something about their childhood, you know, you have to be equipped with being able to offer resources, you know, out in the community or be able to, you know, I think that... Um, I used to work for big group medical practice in Portland and um, opened a behavioral health department there for the first time. And I think that's a real need, too, is being able to integrate behavioral health into the primary care setting to be able to um, keep track of those clients. You know, instead of them going out into the community, you lose track of whether they actually followed up on anything, you know, whether they're... um, getting some help and so you know um, I think part of it is not knowing what to do with the information then is my guess now we've been talking about 
dealing with dysfunction, but I remember you and I, we knew each other through delivering babies together when I was a resident. Right. And you were one <laughs> of the nurses who was always, always made sure that the lights were low, always made sure that, you know, all the beeping loud things were kind of turned down, obviously taking care of the patient, but being aware of that this was a small, mm-hmm. fragile baby being born into the world and the mother that was doing a lot of work. So are there preventive things that we can be doing? Are there things that we can be incorporating into our lives um, energetically or sound-wise that can be helpful? I think that um, the the time-honored traditions of... of um, energy medicine, which incorporate all the Eastern philosophies um, with um, yoga, Tai Chi, Qigong, uh, acupuncture, um, any kind of um, moving the physical body, even just getting out and walking in nature. Um, So, um, you know, being aware of our energy bodies and being able to you know, work with that and, and, you know, Qigong and Tai Chi are wonderful ways of, of um, on your own and yoga, being able to uh, shift and move energy in the body. I mean, you don't have to go to a sound healer to have an impact with moving energy in your body. Um, I, um, so I think, yeah, getting out and um, being able to walk in nature is is a wonderful uh, tonic to the nervous system and or just sitting sitting in nature you know being able to to de-stress and what you're talking about with tai chi qigong acupuncture um, you're talking about the use of meridians in a slightly different way you've been talking about previously using sound to activate i guess the Mm -hmm. the meridians that are used traditionally in Chinese medicine. So it's the same, you're just using them in a different way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Another, uh, when you talk about things that people can do um, on their own, um, you know, for, for instance, you know, chronic stress, worry, anxiety, pretty much, you know, it, it exists in your, your left part of your brain is more of the worrying mind, you know, the the one that's ruminating and constantly, you know, um, just fretting about life. And the more things that you can do to activate your right brain, um, which involves all this movement I'm talking about, but but in addition, you know, so dance, uh, singing, for instance, being in the car and, and singing, um, activates you know the creative brain and you know for instance it's impossible to sort of uh, sing and worry at the same time so the more ways that you can incorporate more joy more laughter um, you know being able to um, to sort of counteract that you know left left brain that that wants to be in a chronic state of, of worry so Uh, With my clients, I'm often um, recommending more play and more fun and more pleasure in their life. You know, how can they incorporate, um, you know, dance? How can they incorporate, you know, and make make sure that they're uh, moving their bodies? You know, that's a way of keeping, keeping everything in balance. What I wonder is, 
we've spent a lot more time focusing on physician and provider wellness, not just physicians, but all healthcare providers and their wellness, which is a conversation that we weren't even having 20 years ago. And, and partially it's because we've had more providers across the board feeling the, the chronic stress of things being ramped up, shorter time frames with patients and more productivity and quality goals that need to be met, all of which are very legitimate. But it does increase a certain amount of stress, which is leading to provider breakdown. Yeah. So I wonder if the more providers themselves see that they, they need to come back to a place of balance in a healthier way, the more the types of things that you are doing will become embraced. Do you think it's reaching that point? <laughs> well, it's in your experience. I think we're still talking about provider wellness at mm-hmm. this point. Um, I don't know how much we're actually doing about it. I think it's a little bit like the crisis that people have to get to the place of crisis before anybody recognizes it. And then they're still considered the outliers. So I would love to say, yes, it's so much better. I think we're still working on it. I don't think we've right. gotten to a place of prevention quite yet. I think some things have changed. If you think about the on-call schedule, for instance, in you know residencies and all of that, that seems to be um, improving and, and certainly more realistic. Um, I know having worked in the hospitals, uh, during the time when I worked there, you know, the, the demands and the rigors of, you know, the physicians who were on call were just over the top. And, you know, you had a lot of sleep-deprived physicians that were, you know, having to, you know, function the next day. And, and um, it's part of the reason why I didn't go into, I had contemplated midwifery <laughs> instead of, <laughs> becoming a psychiatric clinical nurse specialist because I, you know, it was it was uh, whether or not I, I wanted to have that kind of on-call schedule and all of that. So it was kind of a quality of life decision. But um, I think we have to look at what is going well and what has changed. And, you know, there's an awareness there that, um, that, um, you know, it's an overall system that needs to change, you know, how we approach medicine and, and um, you know, and a lot of it is just a, a time management thing. You know, it's a lack of time to really properly um, address the preventive kind of piece of medicine that, that is so um, needed. And I think maybe, you know, like in Maine here, the crisis with the opiate um, addiction, um, that, that is a direct correlation to how our society, you know, is dealing with, with stress, with, um, you know, the, what I was talking about earlier with the adverse childhood experience, um, that's how we cope as adults, you know, do we turn to alcohol, do we turn to, um, you know, drugs, and, and so, um, that's reaching, you know, an epidemic uh, proportion. So things like that may um, help us look at how we can deal with, you know, the bigger issues in, in a in a broader way, um, because it it is about, you know, the drugs, but it's it's about what is underneath, you know, what is underneath there uh, that that is not being treated 
that um, properly, you know. So um, I'm not an expert. I don't have the answer for all of that. But I, um, you know, so I see I see a path, and it it how you know, however winding it is. I think that you know we'll you know hopefully be able to get there. But I do think it needs to be um, there need to be classes in med school about this. I think they need to start talking more about um, prevention and not just uh, treating symptoms and you know looking at looking at the whole person. Well, I agree. And as the mother of a child who's starting med school um, this summer, I really hope they start these classes soon because I want my kid to come out on the other side to not only be a good doctor but also to be psychologically and emotionally whole because that will make him a better doctor and a better human being. And I think absolutely all of these things that we're talking about, like from from your lips to God or the Creator to to the ears of yeah. of the greater energy, I guess. Mm-hmm. I've been speaking with Pamela Floria, who has been in the nursing profession for more than 40 years and has a private practice in Freeport. Um, Over the past two decades, she has worked as an intuitive energy psychotherapist, integrating sound and color healing with traditional talk therapy. Thanks for coming in today. Oh, this was great. Thank you so much for having me. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port everybody is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Today it is my pleasure to have in the studio with me Dan Connor, who has been an integral part of Maine's music community over the last two decades. Prior to focusing on his solo career, Dan was the singer and songwriter for the band Gypsy Tailwind. In June 2012, he suffered a seizure and doctors found a brain tumor the size of a peach. After a year of recovery, Dan was again able to drive a car and took a job as a taxi driver. He has since begun playing his instruments and songwriting and recording again, and he released a new single in April. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. I think I would have to correct this bio. Maine's music community over the last two decades, I have known you as a musician since we were both in high school, at Yarmouth High School. Mm, Yes. That's a few more than two decades ago. Yeah, that might be three or more, three and a half. Or, yeah, who's yeah. counting, really? But, no. But, yeah, you've been doing this a long time. I have. Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of kept me alive, though, I think, somehow. Yeah. Well, I was very um, shocked to hear about this this brain tumor. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy, because yeah. I had known you kind of in high school and then more recently, and then you went through this big, big thing. So I guess I want to learn more about that. Well, it was a shock to me as well. Um, I, uh, geez, uh, I was at Old Port Fest. It was the, it was the day of Old Port Festival. I was out <clears throat> with my dog. Um, beautiful day. Um, had, uh, just recently started, um, dating this girl, uh, and, um, that night we hung out and, and I decided to stay at her place and, you know, what's crazy is we had talked about seizures. She had talked about, she had had a seizure and, I had said my mom's epileptic, and uh, I have epilepsy in my family. And um, about two in the morning, um, I had a seizure at her house. Um, 
And uh, of course, she at first she thought I was kidding, and you know, making it up or faking it. And uh, but then she realized that that wasn't the case. <clears throat> she's a a blessing in that she's a trauma nurse at Maine Medical Center, and so she knew right away. And she woke me up, and her, you know, I came out of it, and she said, "You just had a seizure." And of course, I thought she was joking because we had talked about it. Um, which I, you know, found kind of odd that, of all things, we had been talking about seizures. And then I knew it had happened, um, and uh, she uh, put me in her car and brought me to uh, Mercy. I had a CAT scan. They found something on that scan. They then brought me to Maine Med and put me in an MRI, and <clears throat> I came to the following morning, opened my eyes in a hospital room at, uh, at Maine Med, and there's this tall, lanky guy sitting at the end of my bed, and I looked around, I saw all my family members, and I thought to myself, what's going on? And he said, you have a brain tumor. And I thought, oh, this can't be true. I must be dreaming. Um, and uh, the following morning, I was uh, in emergency surgery to have it removed. Um, and uh, thank God I had that seizure. Um, had I not, the tumor was advancing and, um, you know, could have been fatal, and I was saved, really. Um, it's ongoing. It's uh, called an oligodendroglioma. Say that one ten times fast. Uh, and, uh, wow, it's something that I'll have to deal with for the rest of my life. It's not thought to be curable, but it's manageable, um, like uh, chronic illness is the way they like to, to put it. Um, Although it's cancer, they just look at it like any chronic illness. Uh, have to have MRIs every six months. That's always nerve-wracking. Um, but, you know, I can have treatment, uh, more surgery. Uh, they can manage it, I think, for a long time, which I'm lucky. If you can have a brain tumor, you'll want to have uh, an oligo um, because it's slower growing and, and more manageable. So <clears throat> it's uh, not a great thing to deal with, but... It's um, in some ways uh, a blessing to me in that it uh, put a lot of things in perspective, um, what's important. Um, and uh, yeah, so here I am, alive, doing well, and feeling pretty darn good, aside from the seizure medication, which is yucky, but that's okay. I'll deal with it. Before you had the seizure, there was no indication that anything was going on for you? Well, in looking back, my behavior had changed uh, pretty significantly over the prior, you know, three or four years. I was provocative, risk-taking, bursts of anger, um, just things that were out of character for me. Um, of course, to me at the time, I, I didn't notice it, um, but a lot of other people did. And uh, I can't blame it all on that, right? <laughs> um, but uh, a lot of behavioral changes, um, lack of follow-up, follow-through, um, a lot of things went haywire. Um, I got uh, fired by my own band. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then that happened, and they had it removed, and the recovery was long and, um, and tough. But uh, I think... Uh, ultimately, I'm, I'm better. Um, I feel better. Um, my brain's working a lot better without that big 
you know, tumor pressing on all the adjacent areas. Yeah, that's a good size for a tumor to be. Yeah, it was. <laughs> My doc said it was maybe the biggest one he had ever removed, and he does a lot of those. But, <clears throat> you know, the way I look at it is I'm strong <laughs> to have a tumor that large and um, not have it be found earlier. Um, so ultimately it's a blessing. It's hard to look at it that way all the time. Um, but, uh, I'm here. I, I think, uh, it's really inspired me, um, to work harder at, uh, music, um, knowing, uh, that life, uh, um, can be very short at any moment. Uh, you can lose your life. Um, and that goes for anybody. So, um, about a year and a half to two years, maybe after I, I started to recover, um, get my thoughts back, be able to use my words. Um, and uh, I started writing and playing and recording on my own. And, um, yeah, so here I am five years later, um, coming right up will be my anniversary. Um, they don't call it remission, um, with primary brain tumors. They call it stable. Um, so the tumor's stable, and I'm really happy about that, actually. So You have a daughter who is starting high school next yes, year. Yes, Grace. This must have been really difficult for her. It was, and um, we didn't let her know um, because, you know, she was eight and a half, you know. So... It was, I don't know how her mom and, and my mother put it to her because I don't have a lot of memory of the whole time period. Um, but uh, just over this last year or so, we've kind of clued her in as to what's going on and and let her know um, that, you know, your dad has a um, an illness um, and uh, he goes for MRIs and, um, and it's brain cancer. And... Uh, He's uh, he's going to be okay, but you know it's it's important to to understand it and to know so that if something goes wrong quickly, um, it won't be a total shock to her. Um, so she's been clued in, and she's strong. She's a tough kid, and she's a hell of a musician, by the way. Multi instrumentalist, um, records her own songs, plays guitar, horn, piano, and uh, I'm not so sure if there's enough room for both of us in this town. Um, but uh, it makes me really happy. I must have done something right. I would think that as someone whose primary interest in life is being creative, mm-hmm. to have something like a tumor in the <coughs> brain mm-hmm. must have been really deeply unsettling. It, you know, it, it was. Um, thankfully, I've learned a lot about the brain. Um, the science of the brain. Um, The tumor was located in the left frontal lobe, which is where you get your, you know, executive functioning, your ability to plan, your ability to organize. Um, Your right um, frontal lobe and prefrontal cortex um, is where you get your creativity. Um, And so I still have that part of me and maybe more without the left frontal lobe dragging it down into trying to overthink or overplan. Um, I feel like maybe it's allowed me to just flow creatively. Um, 
but uh, planning is still tough. Um, I have help um, uh, from uh, a very important person in my life, Gretchen, who helps me plan and record and takes care of the, you know, web things and the Facebook and all the social media platforms and um, is also a pretty darn talented engineer. So um, she kind of holds it together on that side. She plays left frontal lobe in my band, I suppose. Well, it, it sounds like even absent a tumor, <coughs> it's good to have somebody who can compliment you well yeah. regardless. It is. Um, it's good to have someone who understands, you know, and knows um, the limitations, um, memory, things like that. Um, you know, uh, the ability to remember and schedule and things like that are difficult. And, you know, the iPhone isn't always the best way to do that. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes I enter appointments and things and I think to myself, well, why didn't it pop, right? Um, so. You know, using a calendar, things like that. You know, I was I was kidding with uh, someone here at the office, Chris, about uh, you know, you know, he had had a stroke, and uh, I was asking him, is that why all the ink is all over his palms? You know. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's really important to have that support. It's critical. Without it, things don't go very well. Given that, as you said, you were fired by your own man, did you have the opportunity to go back and talk to people from Gypsy Tailwind and other parts of your life to say, hey, this is what happened to me? Yeah, I mean, I was half joking when I said fired. Um, They just decided that um, I was just too crazy, and that's the truth. Um, And I still feel badly about that. You can't always blame that on a head injury or brain injury um, uh, you know so but I have been able to go back and and uh, and talk that through with them and and I can remember when I was being wheeled um, on a gurney I guess uh, um, from my room my hospital room towards the the surgery room and I was kind of half out of it but uh, all of them came running through the hall and sort of escorted me um, to the the surgery room um, and uh, that says a lot about those guys they're, they're incredible people they <clears throat> you know really they made the band although I was the primary songwriter uh, none of that would have happened without uh, all of them you know and uh, and I understand it <clears throat> and I've made peace with it and I've made peace with them and um, and that feels good um, for everyone I think it's really important to um, heal. Um, there were a lot of wounds that I created, um, and uh, I look back and I, I feel badly about it. Some of it was me, maybe. Some of it was um, having a tumor, um, but uh, that's been healed, and that feels good. After a year of recovery, you were able to drive again mm-hmm. and became a taxi driver. Yeah. Which probably wasn't something you had thought about doing for a job prior to that time. No, I, I hadn't, you know, and I had never thought I'd be a taxi driver. Um, I had a, a friend that uh, 
that did taxi driving and said, you know, hey, maybe you ought to check it out. I can get you sort of an interview or a, um, a job maybe, you know, driving for a local taxi company. And I thought, eh, I don't know. But then I thought, well, maybe why, why not, you know? It's uh, something different. Um, so I, I got in a cab and I was early on in my recovery, so my memory wasn't great. and. Um, my ability to remember directions was not healed completely, um, but they knew, they were aware um, of my condition and that I had had surgery. And <clears throat> so uh, they, uh, <laughs> what, the funniest thing is the first day they put me on the road in a cab, um, it, it was St. Patrick's Day, the busiest day of the year. And I had had minimal training, and uh, you know, you're working on a radio with rough and tough dispatchers, and and uh, I, they put me in a cab, and and I needed to go fill it with gas. I drove it up the road to the Big Apple, pulled it up to the pump, I had to lock the cab because you never leave your cab open. I locked the cab, put the nozzle in to fill it up, went in and paid, uh, came out. Uh oh, I've locked the keys in my cab. <laughs> First day on the road. Uh, went in, had the store call. The store had to call it because my cell phone was in the gap. Uh, now I'm absolutely, my heart's racing a million miles an hour. And uh, So they call down. Uh, and they say one of your cab drivers locked his keys in his cab at our pump. And uh, they had to send another guy up with a backup set of keys, open it. Now you got two cabs off the road on the busiest day of the year. I finally get back in my cab. I book in, which is, hey, I'm back on the road. This is cab whatever number. And the dispatcher said, oh, great. A rookie cab driver locking his keys in his cab on his first day on the busiest day of the year. And every cab driver hears this. Well, and that started that. So um, what was amazing about cab driving is I actually really enjoyed it. Um, it really helped me recover. It helped me with memory, um, tasks, following instruction, uh, directions, remembering to pick people up when they gave me a job, having conversations with you know, passengers, um, sort of practicing um, conversing, if you will, um, with people that I didn't really know. So it was good in that way. It was sort of anonymous um, and safe for me. So, you know, after a couple of years, I'd become really good at driving a cab. And then I suffered another seizure. Um, and uh, my neurologist said, yeah, pretty much cab driving's over for you. And uh, I said, oh, well, it was a good two-year run. And that was my, uh, my best form of rehab, um, to rehab my brain. Um, it was pretty incredible. Um, wasn't necessarily by choice. Uh, but uh, in looking back, uh, I really improved significantly over that period of time. And, you know, during that time, I, I became inspired <clears throat> and uh, really started thinking about music, playing my instruments, um, taking my recording gear at home out of a box that it had been sitting in and, and uh, um, where I was living had an old woodshed out back that I sort of converted into a, a makeshift studio and uh, 
and started uh, started doing it again and and uh, and really found the love and uh, and really worked my my butt off so to speak to uh, to you know create songs um, that uh, are real and uh, um, I'm feeling pretty pretty good about it actually at this point which is nice I don't know what I'd do without it um, I don't know that I'd be who I am today without it it's uh, I'd be uh, be a different person you know there was a time I thought I would you know just give it up and that I couldn't do it anymore um, but uh, giving up music um, is uh, it's not something I can do um, I've tried can't do it so here I am back at it again recording songs and putting them out and that feels amazing to me I think about people in music and I know that for example Spencer I'll be <coughs> our sound engineer mm-hmm. he is roughly our age a little bit younger mm-hmm. and he's just released his 20th album mm-hmm. and that's a lot of work over many many years and what you're describing is kind of continuing that work continuing yeah. something that is mm-hmm. just it's a process so you keep showing up you keep being creative you yeah. keep doing the work yeah and it seems to me that you'd really have to balance out what the energy is required to do that yeah with the love that you have for this music and what you can give right um there are times when it's difficult uh you know i um have a lot of days where i don't feel good um and they warned me about that said you won't feel good all the time Uh, my my brain is constantly changing um it's healing um scar tissue is growing from the surgery there's tumor there that's growing slowly they can't actually see it um but they warned me about that so yeah there is a balance um you know uh what i really love about it however is the process of doing it and that's what i've sort of figured out it's you know it's not necessarily the end result it's the getting there that i've really learned to love um it frustrates people, I'm sure, because by the time I'm done with a song and recorded, I've done it so much that I've moved on. And my whole thing is, yeah, that song is cool, but you got to hear all this new stuff. And of course, they're just hearing the things that I've recorded and put out for the first time. Well, I don't want to say I'm necessarily bored with that it's more about I want to continue the process of doing it and 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 seeing what happens that that's where the real love is 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 doing it you know um, there is no end uh, for me I hope Dan we're going to uh, leave the show with a song that you have written and performed tell me about that um well <clears throat> You know, I I really started to think about um, when I was told um, of my tumor um, and of my my illness and what that felt like. And you know, I sat and thought and wrote and, and journaled um, thoughts about it. And 
um, what came out in terms of the lyrical content and the whole sound was a sort of analogy or comparison of a of a, a person who's a prisoner that's escaped um, or that's trying to escape and um, and that I really felt as though I was in jail and uh, so it's the story of a, of a person who um, you know, hides out in a woodshed, um, yeah. which is where I worked, um, where my studio was. And in the morning, um, they they went on the run, and um, they were found uh, in a hotel room hiding out uh, because they were playing the blues too loud. And they were uh, somebody called the front desk, and the cops showed up, and the cops arrested me and said, "Son, you better come with me." Um, I'm going to take you out and set you free. And uh, the police sort of drove me, and this is sort of my surgeon, right? I'm going to set you free. Um, and uh, they drove me to the desert um, and set me free and said, if you survive the desert through the night um, with no clothes, no water, um, you deserve to be free. And, uh, you know, I in the morning I woke um, to you know, extreme temperatures after a long night shivering and and being cold and and uh, got out of the desert and started hitchhiking and was picked up by an old man who drove me to the sea and uh, and I threw a bottle with a message home and stripped myself of those prison clothes and uh, so that's sort of the analogy of what I've been through. Um, from the eyes of a of a prisoner, and uh, that is set free and, and makes it and survives. Well, I'm sure people are going to enjoy this song, and um, certainly I'm extremely appreciative of the fact that you have made it through all of this and yeah. that you have been yeah. set free. Yeah, you know, I hope it's inspiring to to people who you know have everyday struggles and wonder if they can make it through whether they have an illness or not life is hard um, but uh, if I can help uh, as an example of just you know um, persistence not giving up um, I hope uh, I hope it inspires people we've been speaking with Dan Connor who has been an integral part of Maine's music community for at least the last two decades probably more and uh, we will continue to look for music from you and, um, and really wish you all the best and thank you for still being here with us. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 303, Musical Healing. Our guests have included Pamela Floria and Dan Connor. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see our Love Main Radio photos on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our musical healing show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. 
May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Oh!